Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a destination. We are finally here. Let's go. What is good, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Destination Dynasty. I am your host, Scott Connor, at Charles Chill FFB on Twitter. As always, you can find everything going on over with Destination Devi at patreon.com slash allgas. The newsletter, allgas.beehive.com slash subscribe. Get something in your inbox every Friday from all of the DD team. And then finally, my other ventures, patreon.com slash dynasty and chill. And then shout out to Clay and Shane. Uh, trades in five dynasty trades in five on youtube absolutely crushing it every tuesday or wednesday night but mostly tuesday night live streams taking all your dynasty trades dynasty strategy topics Uh, if you like what you hear on this show it's basically two hours of that type of stuff that we're discussing every single tuesday night live on youtube starting at 8 30 p.m eastern time and as you recall uh, last week we talked about running backs and looked at running back efficiency Uh, which players maybe we might be able to buy, sell, some pivot opportunities with current ADP. Got a lot of good feedback on that. Got some messages from people that said I was able to make some deals. Never really thought of it that way. So hopefully this is some new content to people in terms of how to approach the running back position. This is the prime time to do it uh, during the offseason when a lot is unknown. This is a time where you can make those moves. As soon as a lot of things start to fall into place with the draft, uh, with more free agency signings as depth charts start to fill out, it's a lot harder to make those trades. Uh, The time to embrace that variance is right now, especially with what I talked about last week with some of the efficiency numbers and what you're actually targeting to try to hit replacement value at running backs. For this week, I'm going to expand on it a little bit more, and this topic came up in the Heisman Discord chat this week, and I figured, you know what, let's dive a little bit deeper into that, and let's make this the next episode following up on last week. So I wanted to pull some data and just figure out what we can be looking at from this year's rookie class perspective and how to slot some of these running backs in. We talk a lot about the theory of any running back on a 53-man roster. And if I'm drafting one of these running backs in round two or round three of this year's rookie draft, even round four, or picking them up off waivers, a lot of times what I'm trying to figure out is where do they slot in on the depth chart and how can they give me some potential spot start opportunity over the next couple of years. Obviously, at the higher end of that range, you're talking about the guys from last year like Damian Pierce or Rashad White or Brian Robinson. And you hear a lot of discussion about how those guys are going to get drafted over and how they're not long-term assets. And a lot of those arguments stem from the fact that they were round three, round four, maybe even later, Isaiah Pacheco, for example, they didn't have the draft capital. But what if we're wrong in the assumption that we're looking at those players through the wrong lens to begin with? It used to be, sure, if you were a round five running back and then you got early opportunity because of injuries or whatnot, but then you weren't that good. You just got a lot of touches. We could probably spot circumstances where those players were frauds. They were sells. They were guys we wouldn't want to bet on long-term simply because they are a replaceable commodity, but they're also not efficient. They're also not good. But then you weigh that with today's NFL landscape where you have to figure there are a lot of teams and we've seen teams do this. Just look no further than the Chiefs. Everyone's seen those numbers posted about how much the Chiefs have paid their running backs 
during the last five-year stretch and why it hasn't really mattered all that much. So you have to figure teams are looking at this more about bang for your buck. How much can we get out of the running back without actually having to pay them any significant money? And then also, where can we find advantages on the market to exploit that? And you're already seeing it with some teams that are choosing to not pay their running backs, extensions that they had previously already given to them. And then other teams, and Chargers, for instance, apparently not willing to negotiate with Austin Eckler, who has been, like we talked about on last week's show, one of the two or three best running backs in the league in the last decade. And they've basically said, you know what, you're making $6 million, we're on a one-year deal, we'll give you something maybe similar for the next year or two, but that's it. You're not getting a significant pay raise, and go ahead and test the market. Go see if someone will trade for you and then turn around and give you the contract that you want. We're just not seeing it. So what we're going to see in the next couple of years, as teams continue to take this approach, you're going to see the average annual value contracts for running backs go down. You're going to see the transition tag and the franchise tag numbers go down. You're going to see less of these extensions, similar to the McCaffrey, Mixon, Kamara, Dalvin Cook, Aaron Jones, Zeke Elliott, Derrick Henry, Nick Chubb. We saw all those contracts done in a very short period of time. You're going to see less of those. There's not going to really be a need for that because I've seen some people talk about this, and it's a a thing that I mentioned actually a couple years ago with Josh Jacobs. And this was before Josh Jacobs even had his great 2022 season. But if you draft a running back in the first round and you just assume, hey, he's going to be on his rookie deal for five years, which would include the fifth year option, and then potentially two franchise tags, which you may say, well, why would you ever franchise tag a running back? But you're seeing it this year. You're seeing it with Jacobs. You're seeing it with Barkley. You're seeing it with Tony Pollard. If you can get that extra year without having to address the position any more than you typically would, it can be of a good value. Let's just take Najee Harris, for instance. And we know Najee Harris probably isn't that great, but he could also be the type of player that the Steelers go, you know what, we like having him there. He's stable. He can absorb a lot of touches. Najee Harris was a first-round pick in 2021. His rookie contract was four years, $13 million. His fifth-year option, assumably, will be picked up after this year. It would be somewhere around 6 to $8 million. Not sure exactly what the terms will be, but let's just ballpark and give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say $8 million. So now, effectively, with his fifth-year option, he got paid five years, $21 million. Let's say they decide to franchise tag him twice. So he gets franchise tagged the first year. Now, keep in mind, the franchise tag right now, this year, was over $10 million, but it will be lower as the AAVs of these contracts continue to go down. So let's say the first franchise tag for Najee Harris will be about $9 million. Tax on another year, six year, $30 million. Then let's say he gets chosen to be franchise tagged again, which might be a little bit crazy until you realize, hey, if he's able to absorb 350 touches and be a staple of our offense, even if he isn't the best player or the most explosive, we can still sign him for another deal Another franchise tag, similar to Saquon Barkley, similar to Josh Jacobs. Let's grab another year, and that's 22% of what he made the year prior. So let's say it's now $11 million. You now have Najee Harris over seven years making about $41 million, and give or take a couple mil here or there, but let's just call it $41 million over seven seasons, seven years. That is an AAV of less than $6 million per year. Now, obviously, he gets the guaranteed money that comes with those franchise tags, but that's pretty much it. And if you think about this from a cost perspective, if the team can get one of these 60 percenters, and I'll talk a little more about what that is, and that's what the rest of the episode is going to be talking about, it's pretty beneficial to have one of these guys on a rookie deal and essentially have them at a cost-controlled price for seven years. I mean, you look at a guy like Najee and you say, all right, if we're going to hammer him 350 touches or more every year until that eighth year, by the time he gets to year eight, sayonara, good luck. If you want to go elsewhere, you're finally free. You can go sign somewhere else. You can hit this market where, let's see, what's everybody getting out there on the open market? Six million a year. Jamal Williams, David Montgomery, Les, Deontay Foreman, Samaj P. Ryan, Damian Harris. It's rough. Even if you're really good, it's rough. And even if you claim and you can back it up that you're a top five running back, aka Austin Eckler, now nah, we're good. We're not really interested in extending a running back that's 28 years old and has a lot of mileage and some injury history. And probably what you're going to get with that 2,000 touches or 1,500 plus touches and seven years worth of work is an injury history. And well, we're probably not willing to pay you at that point. So it's a really good investment for teams and they can lock these running backs up for seven years if they want. And I'm talking about the special ones, the guys where you go, if I draft Bijan Robinson, he's probably one of our best offensive players 
for that seven years that we would be able to control his rights. Now, there's going to be some animosity, right? No player wants to get franchise tag. But at the same time, you look at Tony Pollard, you look at Josh Jacobs, and you look at what they're getting paid this year relative to the rest of the running backs on the market. They're getting more money. If they can stay healthy, they get a shot to do it again next year. Maybe they get another tag. Maybe they don't. But the bottom line is it's a very advantageous place for a team to be, understanding that if they get one of these guys that is truly a difference maker in their offense, it's a very, very cost-controlled asset that they really don't have to worry about doing anything other than putting a 40% guy or multiple 40% guys around that player during this six or seven year span where they may control their rights from a contract standpoint. So let's start getting into the data for the show. So what I've done is I'm working with a sample size where I'm pulling all the way back from before the 2018 season. So we're going back five years and we are just looking at archetypes of players. We talked about last week about how 11 points or so was the cutoff for what you would consider to be like replacement level running back production. And I think I rounded it down to 10 just for purposes of the show last week. But what I'm now doing is looking at, well, what makes up those running back seasons? What does their snap share look like? What is their weight? What does their BMI look like? What do the results look like from an efficiency standpoint? So I've kind of put all that data together, pulled it for the last five years, and want to see if we can arrive to some basic conclusions and then take a look at the 2023 rookie class and figure out How do we parse together which players we would prefer, what our expectations are relative to what their cost is going to be, and then we'll get into some just strategy on how to pick the running backs in this year's class and even how to pick them before the NFL draft, because I think that's one thing that I've been faced with the last couple days is doing rookie drafts, have a couple of them prior to the NFL draft, and it's tough. You know, I've relied on some of the stuff we've got from Ray from the film breakdown, like his film breakdown scores. And then combining some of this data with projected draft capital and just trying to figure out, okay, what running backs am I going to prefer? The problem is you end up having seven, eight, nine, ten running backs in one large cluster, and the draft capital isn't really a great tiebreaker. And the film grades are good, but then again, you sit there and you go, okay, well, if this guy's a round three pick and this guy's a round five pick and the round five pick goes to a great spot and you don't love the round three pick spot, is it enough to warrant flip-flopping them? And I think the answer is yes, and then definitely the answer is going to be yes in the eyes of the community. So that's the other thing is you're trying to weigh, okay, not only picking the right players, but then also weighing in this factor of potential market value. We talked about that on the wake-up mock draft where this is a reason I'm going to take Zach Evans. This is a reason I'm going to take Sean Tucker. This is a reason I'm going to take player X or player Y because I probably have a better shot of selling them if something positive happens, aka a good landing spot, Versus draft capital where, okay, both players are around four picks. Who are people going to prefer? It's probably going to be landing spot dependent. And then they're going to look at other factors and go, okay, is this guy fast? What trait does he have? Who else is in his backfield? Like there's going to be a bunch of tiebreakers that we don't have the ability to answer for right now. So it's very hard to pick out the running backs pre-NFL draft and pre-landing spots. What tells me this year, that stuff's going to matter more than ever. To the point where the NFL doesn't value these guys, so they're just going to cluster them all in one huge chunk of picks, probably anywhere from early round three to mid round five, and there's going to be a span of probably 80 picks in that range, and it's not really going to matter who the players are in there. It's going to matter what are the landing spots, what does the market think of the player's landing spot, and then what do they think of the player. Because even the most pragmatic dynasty players, even if they love this running back or that running back, they can acknowledge that there's a lot of power in running backs opportunity in the present. There's a lot of understanding from a roster construction standpoint. Hey, if I know this guy's going to get X amount of touches or I know this is going to be his perceived role, I can kind of ignore the profile or the talent. Because we're really not looking at running backs like, hey, this is a long-term investment. I'm not drafting Damian Pierce to the Texans last year in round four because I thought he's going to be a long-term starter. He could be, but the reason that he would have been vaulted over others despite him not being the darling coming into the draft in that tier, well, the landing spot, the opportunity. And people acknowledge that. I think a lot more people are drafting that way versus, man, I love this running back. I don't care where he goes. He will be great. And I think that's a little bit of ignorance when you're speaking of running backs that way. And that's just the landscape that we live in right now. So to the data. So I'm going to spit out a lot of data like normally and just kind of talk through it. Draw your own conclusions. Let me know if you have any conclusions that you might have drawn that I didn't talk about because there's so many different things I could do with this data that would be relevant. 
but I couldn't fit it all in one one-hour episode. So I'm just going to get to it. Again, I pulled a sample size from 2018 through 2022, so we have five years worth of data. And I filtered for running backs, and I'll circle back to this later, but I filtered for running backs that got at least 40% of the snap share on their given team in the games they played. Now, there's a couple in here that didn't play a lot of games, and so I filtered those out. So I put the games played minimum at at least 10 So you had to have a season where you played at least 10 games. So it's going to filter out some other players uh, that didn't. I did include a couple players. I put them back in the sample because they are prominent players. So for instance, like Brees Hall, he only played seven games, but I put Brees Hall back in. A few others I added back in because they are currently relevant. So someone like Zonovan Knight uh, does check in in the ADP. So I counted him in there. But then there were some others that I omitted because they had very small sample size. Guys that played three, four, five years ago, didn't play a lot of games, didn't get a lot of touches. Really, they're not that relevant for this sample size. But everybody else is relevant. Even if they're no longer in the league, I wanted to look back and say, okay, in the seasons where they got at least 40% of the snaps What did that look like? And I have all the numbers for all of those players in those seasons. And what did that actually look like? Then compare them using factors that I talked about last week. So we talked about the opportunities per game, which is defined by attempts plus targets. Then you looked at the points per opportunity, which is essentially just their efficiency. What are their fantasy points per opportunity? You could also look at their sheer number of fantasy points per game. And then I also broke it down by their weight and by their BMI. So what do those seasons look like when you have these players that are at 40% versus 60%? What does it look like from a target rate standpoint? You would figure the guys that are playing less snaps but are efficient, they're probably doing it on a higher target rate than some of the guys that are getting more carries, less targets, but they're playing more snaps in total. So maybe they're more on the high 50s, low 60% range. Doesn't mean they're necessarily better in fantasy. That's kind of what we talked about last week uh, from the efficiency standpoint. You have the guys like Najee Harris and David Montgomery. They're not going to be efficient, but they're also able to handle a certain amount of opportunity to where they're going to get fantasy points. But do you want to bet on that? So it's just interesting to look at, you know, where are these seasons coming from? Uh, Anybody that's been in the Heisman Discord, we've had this really fascinating talk about running back usage and how, as we're seeing fantasy points at the top come down, meaning the elite, elite guys, gone are those days where they're probably hitting the 23, 24, 25 point per game seasons. In fact, in this sample size, the highest point per games for their careers thus far has been Christian McCaffrey, barely over 22 points per game. Now that's an outlier. Christian McCaffrey is a Hall of Fame level running back. Nobody else in the NFL is over 19 points per game for their career. So that just speaks to where we're at. And there's even some players that were great at one time here uh, that aren't great anymore. So like Todd Gurley is only a 17.8. There's a couple other guys that have kind of faded out of the league that are definitely never going to crack that number. Derrick Henry, 15.3. Saquon Barkley, 17.97. Now this is over a long period of time. So a lot of these guys have played five, six, seven seasons. But the point is, it's very, very hard to hit these numbers that are 24, 25, 26 points per game. Maybe they do it once, but for a career, it's very, very difficult. So as you see those numbers continue to come down, and then as you see the numbers, and I talked about this on the episode, I believe like five or six weeks ago, where some of the running backs in the middle are starting to come up. There's more running backs that are firing in this replacement level range. There's more guys that are showing up that are scoring in the 13, 14, 15 points per game range, maybe a little bit lower, 11, 12 points per game. There's more of them because from a points per game standpoint, sure, they might only play a significant number of snaps over the course of, say, 12 games during the season. But in the four games where they get most of the snaps, their points per game in those ranges are going to go up a little higher. Now, there's going to be a lot of running backs that play in the games where they're not the starter. You know, think of somebody like Gus Edwards, for instance. He may have two or three games where he ends up getting 20 opportunities. But then he also may have 12 or 13 games where he only gets 10 opportunities, 11 opportunities. So clearly those numbers are going to be skewed, but 
really what you're looking for with him is, okay, does he have the baseline capability of hitting these numbers? And when we can project the opportunity is when we would probably want to start him. That's the whole idea behind the any running back on a 53. It isn't about the points per game necessarily. It's about the weekly opportunity and the potential weekly points per game that a player can give you when you know the opportunity is coming. So even some of these numbers where you look at the points per game and you go, yeah, that might be a little bit lower because a lot of these players that show up on our rosters are not players that you can project their opportunity to be at their peak every single week. You know, they may have a season where they're a backup. But there's three or four games during the year where they're going to get starter level touches. So the cumulative of that is, okay, they're probably not going to hit the same numbers as a guy that's getting those 300 plus opportunities across an entire season. So David Montgomery versus Alexander Madison. The only difference is one has guaranteed opportunity and one doesn't. Is one better than the other? Hard to say. You can look at the opportunity numbers and you can look at the points per opportunity numbers and say, okay, it doesn't make sense that this guy gets 328 touches and this guy only gets 114. That doesn't really make sense. And I'm just throwing out hypothetical numbers, but you can look at efficiency and then you look at volume and go, well, which one do you want to value more? And I'm on the standpoint of if you roster construct right, you don't need to chase the volume, the guaranteed opportunity, because a lot of times that's what you have to pay for. That's what's expensive. And then you double down by paying for that when really you're not getting above replacement production anyway. So you think about it, you go and you buy the David Montgomery and you go, wow, I'm buying myself a guaranteed 17 to 18 opportunities per game. So you go pay that price. You go pay that high second or late first. And then you go, okay, what am I actually buying? I'm not buying anything that is really helping me. It's just a placeholder. And can I replicate that placeholder with three or four guys that are backfilling those roster spots with the Alexander Madisons, with the Melvin Gordon types. Insert whoever you want to insert. It changes week to week, month to month, season to season, definitely it changes. But it changes constantly. These numbers are constantly moving around. The players are shuffling in and out. But the idea is for every David Montgomery, I can probably replace him with two or three bodies on my bench. Now, you have to work within the constructs of your roster. Talked about this on the roster construction series back when we did the lineup one. You have to work with the constraint of how many roster spots you have. In a league where you only have 24 roster spots or 22 roster spots, you can't trade every David Montgomery for three bodies. But if you have 35 roster spots, even 32 roster spots, you can afford a couple spots where, hey, I'm holding on to three David Montgomerys. Why? Because I can replicate that one with a couple bodies extra on my bench which gets back into the whole theory of roster construction, why you want to pay up for the positional advantages and fade these ranges, which is the notorious running back dead zone. You want to fade really anybody with dynasty value in that range other than maybe having one, maybe two guys like the David Montgomery types where you go, okay, I'm just going to eat it. I'm just going to keep this guy because I know I have a floor of touches, but there's no reason to have multiple players that fit this archetype. And then finally, with what I talked about at the beginning of the episode, here's what's actually happening. That archetype is actually becoming more and more common. The running backs are becoming much more replaceable. Teams view it that way. So unless you have one of these guys that is clearly a cog in the offense, a lot of other teams are just going year to year with their running backs. Now, that might be the same guy from the year before, but that doesn't mean the team like the Texans are going to go, okay, Damian Pierce, Tampa, okay, Rashad White. We're probably going to put a similar player next to Rashad White that he had last year. Rarely are they just going to say, oh, okay, well, we're going to put double the workload on Rashad White. Probably not. They're probably going to say, okay, who can we find that replaces Leonard Fournette from last year and just do the exact same thing. So really what you're betting with a guy like Rashad White is efficiency. Is he good? Is the offense good? Where is he getting his points from? What does that look like from trying to pick out who the next Rashad White's going to be? And that's just an example, but I think that last year's class was kind of a shifting point to where it wasn't a great running back class. Nobody liked it from a draft perspective. But then you have quite a few guys that hit in those mid-rounds, and you go, wow, okay, this guy's a decent running back. I'm glad I have him. Glad I have that Tyler Algier or that Brian Robinson or that Rashad White or that Damian Pierce. But let's don't overvalue him. 
don't overvalue him. But I think the reason why we should say don't overvalue him is not because they didn't get draft capital. It's just simply because every running back in that range is probably not that valuable to an NFL team. So if we play that way in Dynasty, we want to look at a way to figure these players out, A, before they come into the league, and B, which ones can we find right now that are cheap? That's kind of what I was looking at last week, and I'm going to expand on it uh, from this week. So back to the data. I rambled for about five more minutes and before I actually got to talking about the data that I pulled. So I went back over the last five years, and I looked at any running back that played over 40% of the snaps. Then I filtered that for the running backs that played up to 50% of the snaps, 60% of the snaps. And then what were the snapshots of those players? What did they look like? What types of profiles did they have from a BMI, from a weight standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint? What did those look like? Since you just went through and parsed out the data. So I'm just going to fire off a bunch of data. I'm going to give out everything that I came to a conclusion with. And then I'm going to talk about at the end of the show, some of the rookies and how to fit it in with what this data means. So let's just start with the sample size itself. So we started out with a total number of running backs over the last five years that played at least 40% of the snaps. So the total numbers, now some of these guys are duplicates. Guys like McCaffrey have done it basically every single year. And when I say 40% of the snaps, essentially what I pulled was they had to play at least the eight games or more, and I think I used 10 for the cutoff, in the season for 40% of the time that they were available. So if a player only played 11 games, but they hit that 40% in the 11 games they played, that counts. So just wanted to put a caveat out there. People are going to say, oh, well, that guy missed five games, so of course he didn't play 60% of the snaps. I'm looking at the number of snaps they played when they were playing, because that's really all that matters. I don't care as much about how many snaps they played over the course of the season. Sure, injuries matter, but the way we're looking at things from a lineup perspective is mostly week to week. So I don't care if a guy missed three games and that pushed his total snaps under 50%. I want to look at how they're being used when they're active, when they're healthy, when they're playing. So over the past five years, we had 241 different running backs fit this criteria. So they played 40% of the snaps, 241 running backs over that sample size. Now, if you do some quick math, 241 over a five-year span, that's not a lot. That's only 48.2 running backs per season. That is not a lot. That is less running backs than we are probably valuing in Dynasty. So that's the first thing that stood out to me is clearly when you get into startup drafts and when you get into people valuing running backs on their roster, there are well more than 48 running backs that do have some value. Now, part of that is just it's ambiguous. There's a lot of players that are fighting for one of those spots. For every one of those spots outside of the top 25, top 30, there's probably three players fighting for each one of those spots. Hence why the running back pool is 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 running backs deep when you factor in all the rookies that are coming in. But it's interesting that only 241 over a span of five years have actually hit that mark. Now, the reason I use that mark is that's basically where you're finding your replacement level running backs or better. Like if you're looking at finding the guys over the course of a season that end up being replacement value, this is where you're finding them. So think back to last week's show where I talked about replacement value and some names that might be sneaky buys or sneaky players that you might want to pivot off of. This is where you're finding them. You're finding them playing at least 40% of the team snaps. When you expand that and you go to 50% of the team snaps, there's only 147 players over the course of five years. So you're talking 147 over five years, average of about 29.4 per season. So less than 30 running backs are hitting a 50% snap share. Think about that. We sit here and we think about, oh man, there's so many committees and so many of these backfields are messy. All I need is a guy that can just play 60, 70% of the snaps. Then you go, wow, some of these guys aren't even getting to 50. And if you get to 50, you're one of 30, maybe, maybe. In fact, in 2022, there was 31, 2021, 32. There were some outliers, 2018, 25, 2020, 27. But essentially, it's never been more than 32 have hit the 50% mark in a given season. That's not a lot. So just keep that in mind next time you have a player and you go, man, I just need this guy to play half the snaps. Usually a little more complex than that. Finally, over 60%. This is where we start getting into rare bell cow territory. I talked about the bell cows last week and how those have a very, very specific archetype. I'll expand on that a little bit more in this show. Over the last five years, only 77 running back seasons have been more than 60% of the snaps. 
that is not a lot at all. You're talking about 77 over a five-year period. You're talking about 15.4 running backs per year. So that is getting into the RB2s where you're not even finding guys getting to 60% of the snaps. So if you're over 60, you're probably considered just by default a bell cow. I don't care about your size. I don't care about your BMI. I don't care about how you're scoring your fantasy points. You are a bell cow. I think it's fair enough when you have such a small sample size of 15.4 per year uh, to call yourself a bell cow, regardless of what that looks like from a physical standpoint. In fact, over the last four years, it's been 16, 17, 16, and 16. So for four seasons, we've been right around that mark, and I would guess it's probably going to continue somewhere in that range. Again, in 2018, it was an outlier. There were only 12. But still, I think it's a very small sample size where you say this guy is going to be a true bell cow. So what do I do with this data? Now that I have all of this, What do these actually look like from a 50%, 60%, 40% perspective? What do they actually look like? So I went through and just looked at what does the typical profile of the players that are hitting the 60% number? So let's start with that. Let's start with the bell cows. And I talked about the bell cows on last week's episode. So go back and listen to that again and expand on what I'm just about to say. So the 60 percenters. So I'm just looking at their averages across the sample size again. There's only been 77 of them over the last five years. The average weight for the 60 percenters, 219.08 pounds. So again, for the 60 percenters, 219.08 pounds. So pretty significant. Average BMI, 30.56. So again, this is for the 60 percenters, 30.56. And then finally, their opportunities per game on average, 18.32. And if you remember, I used the 17 or more, or maybe it was actually 18 or more opportunities per game last week to talk about the bell cows. So this tracks, this tracks to where you have these players that are quote unquote bell cows. That's where you're getting those massive opportunity touch shares. The guys playing the 60% or more snaps, average weight, 219 pounds, average BMI, 30.56 and average opportunities per game, 18.32. Now, curiously, I looked at the target rate as well for those guys just to see, okay, are these guys that are catching passes? And it was still 23.7%. So really of their opportunities, 23.7% of them on average were coming through the air. So what that tells me is if you're looking for a true bell cow, you're not just looking for a guy that's over, let's say 215 pounds, over a 30.5 BMI, but you're also looking for somebody that can catch passes. And you have to probably track a little bit to figure out, okay, how much can this player absorb just from a total workload and say, if it's not probably 18 or more opportunities per game in college, really hard to translate that to the NFL and say, that's what the threshold's going to be. But essentially, that's what it's been if you're looking for one of these true workhorses. Now, what's curious is you then go a little bit lower and you look at these numbers and say, well, how much does it fall off? So let's look at 50 through 59%. So these are the guys over the last five years that played anywhere from 50 to 59% of the snaps. That was actually 70 players that fit that criteria. Average weight was 213.8 pounds. Average BMI, 30.15. Average opportunities per game, 13.658. So now what does this mean? What do these typically look like? These are probably going to be where you're going to find the prototypical examples of the DeAndre Swifts of the world. So you're probably not going to see a guy that plays all the snaps, but you're hoping for efficiency in this range. This is where you're probably hoping for the guy that gives you 10 to 15 touches a game, but they have to be really good with their touches. And so you would expect the target rate for these guys to shoot way up. And I was surprised it didn't necessarily shoot up as far as I thought. It was up to 24.2%. But this is that range that I talked about last week where you can probably spot some value. There could be guys that are worth first-round picks in this range, but they have to be hyper-efficient. They have to be the DeAndre Swifts of the world. They have to be the Tony Pollards of the world. They have to be those guys where you say, all right, I can live with 15 opportunities per game, but they better be good. And they're susceptible to if there's a fall-off. The team can't just fall right back to, well, we're still going to give them X amount of touches. If they lose their efficiency, they're going to fall down and then they're going to fall outside of this range and you're going to go, all right, now what do I do with them? So I think it's important just to kind of understand the archetype that you're working with. When you go a little bit further down, here's where it really gets interesting. Let's go down to the 40 and 49% range. So anything between 40 and 49% of the snaps uh, over the course of five years, there were 94 players that fit this criteria. So a lot more of them. 
That just tells me right there, the other two categories had 77 and 70 respectively, and then this one had 94. So there's 94 running backs that hit this criteria. Now, this is obviously in addition to those other ones that we talked about. So this is 94 that were just between 40 and 49. But if you're cutting it off at 40% or more, you know, the majority of the running backs are coming from this criteria. So you're going to find a lot of guys in this range where you go, yeah, that guy's really not that good. He's never going to get a quote unquote full workload, but who cares? What does that archetype actually look like? How different is it from the bell cows? So what's curious is it doesn't look a lot different between the 40 and 49 percenters and the 50 and 59 percenters. Average weight for these guys, 212.98. Not that much different. The 50 through 59 percent guys were less than a pound bigger. BMI, almost identical, 30.11. Average BMI for the 50 to 59 percenters, 30.15. So almost identical. Opportunities per game, slightly less, about two per game less, 11.674. Then the target rate spiked way up, 26.6%. So up 2.4%. So really what you're finding here is you're probably finding guys that are getting more of their specific opportunity on passing downs. They're getting more targets. They're getting less overall touches. So probably in this range is where you're going to find your typical committee backs. What's curious to me is the average minimums. If you're just looking at this 40% and saying, I just want to find running backs that could give me 40% of the workload, you're probably still aiming for players that are above 210 pounds. Here, the minimum for 40% was 212. At least that was the average. Over a 30 BMI, and you're still looking for probably 12 opportunities or so per game. So if you think about it, how many running backs does that exclude? How many running backs do we currently say, well, that's an outlier. That guy's an outlier. He only weighs 204 pounds. You know, what archetype can I compare him to? What role can I project for him into the NFL? Now, obviously, there are players that are in these ranges that are throwing these averages up, that are throwing them out of whack a little bit. So this is the average. So I'm not saying that every running back that does this has to be 212 or more pounds going forward, has to have a BMI over 30 going forward. But it's interesting just to kind of look at what the baselines are, at least what the averages are, and then compare that. So then where are they coming from within that sample size? Because that's going to be the next question that a lot of people are going to have is, okay, what do the outliers look like? Where can we spot the potential outliers? Who are the outliers? So let's get into that data next. So using what I just mentioned above, obviously with the 60 percenters, we have that average weight of 219 pounds. Now let's break down of the 60 percenters, how many of them were above that? So how many of those 77 seasons over the past five years came from guys above 220 pounds? So I'm going to get into that. 39 out of 77. So we're talking over 50%. So if you're looking for the 60 percenters or more, 39 out of 77 were above 220 pounds. How many of them between 210 and 219? So this essentially is encompassing that entire average sample set that I talked about. 21 out of 77. So 27.2% of the sample size were between 210 and 219 pounds. How many were between 200 and 209 pounds? That's another 14, 18.1%. How many players were under 200 pounds or sub 200 pounds that had a 60% share or more in a given season? Three. Three out of 77. And who were those, you may ask? Austin Eckler twice and Dion Lewis once. That's it. So it's fair to say it's a major, major outlier to ever hit that 60% number if you're sub 200 pounds. But even if you go a little bit further than that, you're still finding the majority, almost 78% of the players that hit that 60% mark are coming from 210 pounds or greater. And that reflects what I talked about in the prior segment. So let's look at the 50 through 59 percenters and where are those coming from? Guys over 220 pounds, 31.43%. So 22 out of 70 were over 220 pounds. Between 210 and 219, another 26. So 37.1% of those players were between 210 and 219 pounds. And then 200 and 209, 21.43%. So if you're looking for guys to hit 50% or more, 
you're still looking at a sample size of almost 90%. In fact, 90% exactly. Only 7 out of 70 players have hit that 50 to 59% mark under 200 pounds. And then obviously the guys that did it over 60, I only had those three seasons. So effectively 10 out of 147 seasons came from guys that are sub 200 pounds. So I'm going to give you the names that make up the seven. And again, see if you can spot a trend with maybe some of the names. How about Austin Eckler twice, and then a random Tariq Cohen, Philip Lindsay, and JD McKissick season. So if those are your comps, not super strong if we're trying to spot outliers within this range. So finally, let's take a look at the guys that were between 40 and 49% from a weight standpoint. So 25 of the 94 were above 220 pounds, so 26.6%. 32 of the 94 were between 210 and 219 pounds. 28 of the 94 were between 200 and 209 pounds. And then only nine of the 94 were below 200 pounds. So even when you're talking about the guys between 40 and 49% of the snaps, still only nine out of 94 were sub 200 pounds. Those names, another Tariq Cohen, another Philip Lindsay, two more J.D. McKissicks, and two Chris Thompsons, throw in a Naheem Hines, and then finally Austin Eckler shows up again. So again, very, very specific ARP types you're looking at here. J.D. McKissick, Chris Thompson, Tariq Cohen, Naheem Hines. And I bet you when you look at all of those players, you'll spot something very, very specific about those players as well. You look at that opportunity per game for these players. So you have Tariq Cohen, 9.27 opportunities per game. Philip Lindsay, 12.27. J.D. McKissick, 8.92. Chris Thompson, 6.61, Naheem Hines, 6.74. Now those are their career numbers, but you get an idea of what these types of players look like. What do they have to do to produce on nine opportunities per game? You know, they have to be hyper-efficient receivers or they have to be super, super explosive. And this is just pulling from the sample size of guys that are under 200 pounds. So again, it's easy to spot those outliers, but this data should kind of show you, man, when a guy is under 200 pounds, it's really hard to bet on them regardless. There really aren't any comps other than some of those names that I gave, unless you're going to say this guy's going to become Austin Eckler. So even when you're hovering around that 200 pound range, I think it's important to really look at this and figure out, okay, is this a bet that I want to make? So now I went and looked at the same data for BMI. And so I looked at the 60 percenters, the 50 to 59 percenters, and the 40 to 49 percenters from a BMI standpoint. And I cut it off starting at 31. So out of the 77 guys that were over 60%, 24 of those 77 have a 31 plus BMI. 36 of them had a BMI over 30. And then another eight of them had a BMI over 29. Finally, eight more had a BMI below 29. And then only one had a BMI under 28. So very, very rare. But if you just cut off the two biggest sample sizes there, you have 78% of the players that hit those 60% or more numbers had BMIs over 30. So a 30 BMI is definitely what you're looking for for the minimum if you're trying to find the 60 percenters. Now for the 50 to 59 percenters. So 19 of the 70 had a BMI over 31. 22 of the 70 had a BMI over 30. So when you add that together, it's almost 70 percent had BMIs over 30. So if again, you just want to use the 30 BMI as a cutoff, then fine. You add another 12 out of 70 had BMIs over 29, and then 12 more had BMIs under 29. So what we're starting to see is that the BMI at 29 or 29.6 or 28.8 really isn't that different if you're just shooting for running back in either of these ranges. That's not really a cutoff, but I think 30 is where you're going to cut it off for both ranges and go, man, if I'm looking for a guy to get 50% of the work or more, 30 BMI is the cutoff. And then finally, the 40, 49 percenters, 28 out of 94 had BMIs over 31. Another 28 had BMIs over 30. And then the remainder of them, you had 38 of the remaining 94 had BMIs under 30. The biggest distribution in that range kind of looks like the sample I was talking about before. 21 out of 94 had BMIs under 29. Only seven had BMIs under 28. So if you're looking for the 40 percenters, if you're looking for the committee guys, if you're looking for the Naheem Hines, if you're looking for the J.D. McKissicks, those types, it's okay to lower the BMI threshold, but you're probably looking for a different prototype. And it really doesn't matter in that range if it's 29.5, 29.6, 29.7, 29.8, 29.9, 29.10, 29.11, 29.12, 29.13, 29.14, 29.15, 29.16, 29.17, 29.18, 29.19, 29.20,
28.8, you're looking more for a skill set. You've kind of already eliminated a player that you're ever expecting to be in the 50 to 60 or more percent range. You're looking for a specialist. So that's where I want to identify a player that's efficient. If I'm going back to the efficiency numbers from two shows ago, which I linked the Google Drive so everybody can look at it, what I really don't want to look at is I don't want to find a player that is inefficient but the profile fits one of these sub 30 BMI guys or these sub 210 pound guys, but especially if they're lingering down in the 29 BMI and low 200 pounds or below 200 pounds, that's definitely players you do not want to bet on. So if you see those archetypes, definitely run if their efficiency numbers are not extremely, extremely high. And then going through a couple other nuggets that I found, I just took the average opportunities per game of guys below 30 BMI. So you're just omitting those guys that are above 30. It's 13.24. Average fantasy points per game, 11.34. And again, these are just the sample sizes of players that were hit the 40% mark. So I'm not just pulling out random players. This is literally the players that fit the criteria of the study that I'm looking at. So sub 30 BMI, average opportunities per game, 13.2. Average fantasy points per game, 11.34. Sub 29 BMI, Average opportunities per game, 12.39. Average fantasy points per game, 10.62. Sub 28 BMI, average opportunities per game, 9.3. Average fantasy points per game, 8.31. The reason I gave those numbers is because you are looking at the sub 30 BMI guys and you're saying, okay, the average fantasy points per game over this sample size, only 11.3 points per game. That's barely above the replacement value. It's pretty much right at the replacement value. So not saying guys can't hit in this range. This is an average. But still, you're looking at this and you're going, man, a lot of players that fit that criteria are not really great bets to be anything other than replacement value. And then the same with the sub 220 pound running backs. Average opportunities per game, 13.09. Sub 210, 11.55. Sub 200, only 10.35 opportunities per game. Points per game track, sub 220 pound running backs, 11.35, sub 210 pound running backs, 10.63, and then sub 200 pound running backs, 10.25. So just kind of illustrating the average players in this range that are below that number kind of speaks to what I said at the beginning. When you get into that bell cow range and where the bell cows from come from, that's where the large number of the massive fantasy point seasons are coming from. There are some outliers. So I looked at how many running backs have hit a 20 plus point per game season with a sub 30 or sub 29 or sub 28 BMI. No one has ever done it with a sub 28 BMI. Christian McCaffrey has done it five times with a sub 30 and sub 29 BMI. He fits both categories because he's below 29. So Christian McCaffrey is the only one. Only one other player has hit 17 points per game with a sub 30 BMI. Todd Gurley, he did it three times. That's it. Only two players, Christian McCaffrey and Todd Gurley with a sub 30 BMI have hit 17 or more points per game in a season. Then you look at guys that have hit 14 or more points per game per season. There's been a couple more of them. You have guys like Obviously, McCaffrey and Gurley, but David Johnson, Austin Eckler, Melvin Gordon, Chris Carson. So really, this is where the majority of the good running backs are going to fall. But still, it's still pretty rare for it to happen with guys that are definitely sub-29 BMI, but even sub-30 BMI. And then 11 points per game. Only 36 have done it, and only 13 have done it with sub-29 BMI. So when you look at this as a whole, you can spot some outliers. You can find that players that are below the 29 BMI mark probably aren't great bets to A, give you the seasons where they're just going to get a ton of volume, but B, they're not really going to probably give you above replacement level fantasy points. And that's just on average. There are obviously outliers that I've pointed out, but when you start saying, well, this guy has to be Austin Eckler, this guy has to be Christian McCaffrey, this guy has to be the next David Johnson, this guy has to be the next Todd Gurley, like those are probably not great bets to make. But then when you start archetyping some of these rookies that come in, you say, okay, what is the expectation? You hear the words thrown around, well, you know, this guy, all he needs to do is get 50% of the snaps. But then you look at his profile and you go, hmm, doesn't really track. He better be a really, really special talent. Otherwise, he's probably just going to be a pedestrian player that I hope is part of a committee. I hope it's part of a good offense. That's why we get back to the very beginning of the show where it's like, man, the landing spots are probably going to matter way more 
for this draft class, even if it is a good draft class, you don't have a lot of players that fit the criteria that I've talked about today where you go, wow, they're just going to be able to transcend the landing spot and be one of these outliers. Unless you want to bet on the outlier, I'm probably more comfortable just saying, hey, throw these guys into the running back mix try to parse out which ones I like, but I'm probably going to need to see the draft capital in the landing spot before I can really, really make a good assessment. Then you're trying to figure out, okay, can some of these guys coexist? I haven't looked at that data, but I'd be curious to see how many of these seasons actually overlapped per team. Because you do hear, well, that's a 50-50 backfield or that's a 40-60 backfield. And which one do you want? Do you want both? Do you want neither? Because you can kind of look at that and say, okay, there's multiple backfields that can produce running backs from both archetypes. You can have a 40%er and a 60%er. They can look totally different. They can easily be used in different ways, but they can both hit the above replacement or better fantasy points. I'd be curious though to see how many of those actually eclipsed into the difference making range. And you usually need to hit the 17 or more fantasy points per game to get into that range. And I would venture to say that those are hardly ever if have never come from a backfield where both of them were there. You might have had one that was there, and then you had another one that was in the 11 to 14 point per game range, which is fine, but rarely are you going to see it or two of them get to a point where they're anything other than just a placeholder. They're scoring 13.6 points per game, 14.2 points per game, which is nice to have, but that's back to that David Montgomery argument. And it kind of goes now into the Montgomery and DeAndre Swift. The reason I use Montgomery is because literally him and Swift are polar opposites. But you look at them and you both go, wow, I think each of these guys can probably be in that replacement value, but valuable asset range. And they do it totally different ways. I don't care which one is going to get all the passing work. I don't care which one's going to get more opportunities. I don't necessarily care which one of them is going to play more stops. As long as them both hit the 40% mark, I'm good with it. Other than that, they're probably very easy to pencil in in terms of what they actually mean in terms of impacting your fantasy team. So hopefully that was uh, some good data that you can take back and just use it to think about some of the running backs when you start to identify these rookies and figure out which ones do I want. More importantly, how do I want to treat the position in Dynasty? It's just data for you to think through, draw your own conclusions, figure out what you want to do with it. Listen to last week's episode again. Look at some of the names that I talked about that I might want to buy or might want to sell, uh, and then compare that with some of this data and see what conclusions you may draw. So with that, I'll come back here in a moment to talk about the 2023 rookies after we hear about Destination Devi's newest sponsor, Underdog Fantasy. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Destination Dynasty is now sponsored by Underdog Fantasy. I'm gearing up for Underdog's Fantasy season-long best ball contest. It's a great way to put your best ball skills to the test against me and everyone else at the Destination Debbie team. The best part? If you use promo code CHILL when you sign up, you'll get a 100% deposit match up to $100. And if you deposit $10, you'll get access to strategize with us in the Destination Debbie Discord, where you can get additional stats, tips, and much, much more to dominate your drafts. What are you waiting for? Head over to underdogfantasy.com, sign up, Again, use promo code CHILL to get a 100% deposit match up to $100 and deposit your $10 to get access to the Destination Debbie Discord. Back to the show. So to close it out, we're going to look at some of the 2023 rookies and kind of where they stack up looking at some of the numbers that I talked about earlier in the show. So let's just start with the sub 29 BMI guys. Now this is based on the combine data uh, and it's been filled in with some of the extra data that we've gotten outside of the combine, but it's complete for the 2023 rookies. And the ones that stand out immediately are the sub-29 BMI guys that also have maybe some weight concerns as well. So Tank Bigsby, BMI 28.48. Now he did check in at 210 pounds, but still, if you're looking for, again, one of those guys that isn't a great receiver, but then you go back and you go, okay, well, he has a sub-29 BMI you're talking about maybe a 17% chance historically to be one of the 50 to 59 percenters, only a 22% chance to be one of the 40 to 49 percenters, and then only a 10% chance to be one of the 
60 percenters. So it's not a great outlook for a guy where then you go, okay, he doesn't really have great odds necessarily based on his profile to jump into those ranges. But then you look at the guys, especially in the 17 or 22% range, what do they typically need to do? They need to be guys that are elite receivers. I already rolled off some of the names that had low BMIs that produced in that range. And Tank Bigsby does not necessarily look like some of those names that I mentioned. So that was one that definitely stood out to me. Uh, One of the others that definitely stands out looking at this data is Zach Evans. Zach Evans, 28.17 BMI, only 202 pounds. I know a lot of people like Zach Evans, but Tank Bigsby is essentially a richer man, Zach Evans, when you look at this data. So concerning to come in with that 28.17 BMI, almost just 200 pounds for Zach Evans. So you're talking about outliers. He definitely has to be in that mix. A couple others that are in this range, Kenny McIntosh, 27.67 BMI. Listen, I like Kenny McIntosh. I think he's a very, very good receiver, maybe the second best receiving back in the class, probably third behind Gibbs and Bijan. But you look at all the other numbers and you go, well, he wasn't fast, 4.6240, 27.67 BMI, 204 pounds. That You already know kind of what his career is going to have to be. He's going to have to fit the mold of one of those other guys. And I bet you if he went back and looked at a lot of those guys that were small, so I mentioned the Naheem Hines, the Chris Thompson, the J.D. McKissicks, a lot of those guys are more explosive and faster than Kenny McIntosh. So where does he really fit? He feels like one of those guys that is actually like missized for the type of running back that he's going to end up being. You almost wish he was just you know, 4-4 speed, and that's all he was. I wouldn't care if he's 198 pounds or 204 pounds or 208 pounds. It wouldn't matter. For his archetype, it just doesn't really fit. So there's a reason why his weight-adjusted speed score was extremely low, and I'm not talking about that necessarily here, uh, but the poorest in the class almost. So not a great sign for Kenny McIntosh. I loved him kind of coming into the pre-draft process, but his testing was so bad. Then you look at the archetype of running back that he is, probably a complete avoid for me. Uh, Tajay Spears, 28.8 BMI. Okay, 201 pounds. Okay. Again, you kind of already know what Tajay Spears is going to have to be. We already have a picture in our mind of what he's going to have to be to be good, and people are betting that he's going to be that. However, when he goes in the late second, early third round of the NFL draft, you're probably going to have to use a first round pick to get him. And I think that's the fear is it's a very narrow outcome for him. And then the other guy I'm going to talk about, Devon A-Chain. A-Chain's much smaller, obviously only 188 pounds, but his BMI is basically the same, 28.2 BMI for A-Chain. So him and Spears are essentially in the same boat. Uh, A little tougher to see A-Chain getting there, just given how rare it is that guys get there when they're sub 200 pounds. But I think you can lump them into the same exact spot. And then you look and say, what type of impact player do they have to be? Probably never going to be more than the 50% range probably locked in to be the 40% range, just need to be super, super good and efficient. So I wouldn't hate if you're going to draft one of those guys, there's probably more economical options that you could find out there in your leagues that are available. I mean, think about why would you ever draft Tajay Spears over trading the same pick for DeAndre Swift? And I don't know if you can do it one for one, but essentially that's what you're hoping Tajay Spears becomes. You're hoping he becomes DeAndre Swift. And people are probably like, oh man, that I really hope he could be more than that. But really, that's like a 95th percentile outcome for him. That's what you'd be hoping for if you draft Tajay Spears with that late first, early second. So it's just a little bit concerning, you know, looking at these numbers. It isn't like Tajay Spears is just small, but he's got a high BMI. His BMI is still sub 29. So those are the ones that stood out to me in this range. This is the concerning range. Tank Bigsby, Kenny McIntosh, Zach Evans, Tajay Spears and Devon A-Chain. Now we go to the very, very top. So let's look at the ones at the very, very top. So we're talking BMIs that are above 31. And I'm going to count Izzy Abanacanda in there because he's 30.99. So he's right on that cusp. But the only guy that's above the 30 mark, counting Abanacanda, is him. The other two, Tyon Evans and Tamion Thomas, they really don't count. So if you're looking for one of the guys that is different, it's Izzy Abanacanda. 31 BMI, let's call it. 216 pounds, and he's fast. It's like the more that I look through this, that's the guy that I'm breaking the tie on regardless of the draft capital because I don't think the draft capital is going to be a major difference. He may go middle round four. Another guy may go early to mid round three. I'm not going to decipher 
which one I want between those two just based on the draft cap. But I'm going to look at this stuff uh, and bank on that a little more. So is he a Banacanda? Definitely one of the outliers because he's at 31 BMI. He's over 215 pounds, checks both of the boxes. And we obviously know it is pro day. He ran really fast. The other guys above 30. These are the ones that I'm probably more interested in than might be getting talked about. And I'm going to round up because there's four guys that are actually at 29.99. So I'm just going to give them credit for being at 30. So there's these seven that I'm going to all lump together. And then you're going to have to kind of figure out, okay, which ones do I like based on their potential receiving upside and break the tie there. But at least they hit the threshold of what I'd be looking for. So that is Kendra Miller, Evan Hall, Dwayne McBride, Bijan Robinson, Eric Gray, Chase Brown, and Sean Tucker. So those seven all are kind of in that range other than Bijan. They're all kind of in that RB 6 through 15 range. And you're going, well, how do I rank these guys? I'm not really sure. I think they're all going to get drafted. I think they're all going to maybe get late day two, early to mid day three draft capital. Let me just wait for the landing spot. And I think that's fair, but I think you can also look at their profiles. And this is where I think it's really valuable to go back to raise receiving grades and go, okay, which ones have the highest receiving grades? Forget about the whole film grade for a second, but just the receiving grade. Because if I'm taking this data and saying these are all in one tier, Kendra Miller, Evan Hall, Dwayne McBride, Bijan Robinson, Eric Gray, Chase Brown, Sean Tucker. So omit Bijan, take those other six and figure out how you want to layer those. The ones that are above 210 pounds in that range, you only have Kendra Miller. So again, Kendra Miller stands out right there. Based on these, Kendra Miller stands out in this range to say, okay, he's 215 pounds. Only Bijan in the group is over 215 or at 215 or over. Everybody else, Chase Brown, Eric Gray, Dwayne McBride, Evan Hall, Sean Tucker, all between 205 and 210 pounds. So they're almost identical other than figuring out, okay, which ones do I like? from a receiving standpoint more than the others. But I think it's fair to probably slot these guys in to the, they could be any of the archetypes. They're probably more of the 40 to 50% guys. But if I say that they're pretty good receivers and I like their receiving game, then I'm okay kind of putting them in that range. So I think these are the ones that I would tier a little bit higher, probably lean towards Kendra Miller. So again, this data says, is he a Banacanda and Kendra Miller stand out above the rest besides from somebody like Jameer Gibbs or Bijan? So now let's go to the middle range, and this is where you find some other interesting names that people probably value a little bit more than they probably should. So you have 29.7 BMI Roshan Johnson, just missed the cut. Jameer Gibbs, 29.4. Zach Charbonnet, 29.1. So those three, Gibbs, Charbonnet, Roshan Johnson. Now, curiously, Jameer Gibbs is locked in at RB2. I don't think that's unfair, and I think he's probably a little bit biased against because people see his weight and go, man, he's only 200 pounds. That's fine. He still has a 29.4 BMI. And what are you betting with Jameer Gibbs and his 4.36 speed and his elite receiving? You are betting on the Christian McCaffrey, Austin Eckler, DeAndre Swift. Like that is what you're betting on. And that's fine. Just acknowledge that's what you're betting on. You're paying a steep price for it. But that's what you're betting on. And if you're going to say, you know what, Gibbs is the best receiver I've come into seen come into the league since McCaffrey, Okay, that's what you're betting on. The other two are a little more interesting because a lot of people have Zach Charbonnet as their RB3. A lot of people have Roshan Johnson in their top five. Both of those guys are kind of in no man's land. BMI is below 30. Roshan Johnson, 219 pounds. Zach Charbonnet, 214. So neither of them hit that 220 pound mark either. So I'm not saying they're not necessarily good running backs, but I don't want to overvalue them to the standpoint of people are giving them a little bit too much credit because of quote unquote how big they are. But the reality is it's not like they're massive relative to others that we've seen in this range. So I think they're being a little bit overvalued. You hear Zach Charbonnet being spoke at is like, man, if there's a bell cow in this class, it could be Zach Charbonnet. If there could be a guy that comes out of nowhere and is a bell cow, it could be Roshan Johnson. That's fine, but I'm not willing to bet on those guys over the likes of Izzy Abanacanda or Kendra Miller. So if I had to pick right now, I'd probably go with those guys over Charbonnet and Roshan Johnson at their price. Now, that doesn't mean they can't fit into this range. It's just I'm a little more concerned based on this data on those guys versus Abanacanda and Kendra Miller. So takeaways from this rookie class, listen, there's a lot of good players. There's a lot of players that checked in with BMIs over 29, which is good. A lot of those players weighed in at at least 200 pounds. So you're hitting the minimum thresholds here. But then what else are they above that? 
you know, how does that differ from a lot of the other guys that are currently in the NFL? And are we going to overvalue these guys simply for the fact of, well, they're fresh, they're new. I have to pick them with a rookie pick, meaning somebody has to go at 112, 201, 202, 203, 204. And as you saw in the wake up mock draft, it's going to be a lot of running backs in that range. And I'm an advocate of drafting running backs in that range. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here saying don't draft them. I'm just saying acknowledge what you are drafting. You are probably not drafting a long-term asset. You are drafting a replaceable commodity that you've chosen. Hey, with this pick, I need to fill out my running back room. Here's where I want to take my shots. I Hopefully that's what this podcast gives you is a better way to kind of figure out which players you want to tier where. Use Ray's film grades to kind of give you another set of data to throw in there that's different than what I'm talking about. And then figure out, okay, how do I have these guys before the draft? If I have to make rookie picks before the draft, fine. But if I don't, I'm ready to go as soon as I see the landing spots. Draft capital, I don't think it's going to matter that much. But once I see the landing spots, then I start figuring out, okay, which ones do I want to bet on? Because then when I see the landing spots, I'm starting to compare Zach Charbonnet versus whoever else is on the depth chart at the time when I see the landing spot. And then figure out, okay, which guy's probably the 40, which guy's probably the 50 to 60 percenter. Can they work together? Or are they both kind of like the 60 percenters? Are they both maybe the 40 percenters? I think that's one takeaway you can find here is if a team already has like a 40 percenter, like a DeAndre Swift, you don't want to see that team draft Tajay Spears and vice versa. If a team already has a 60 percenter like Najee Harris, you probably don't want to see that team draft Izzy Abanacanda. So it's one or the other. You kind of got to figure out where you want to put these guys in based on this data and then figure out where you want to go from there. So hopefully this is helpful. It's just an early look at the 2023 running back class. If you have to make some valuations or decisions or even just put together your tiers pre-draft, uh, the biggest winners from this data obviously are Izzy Abanacanda and Kendra Miller. The biggest losers are probably Kenny McIntosh and maybe Tank Bigsby, but definitely Kenny McIntosh. And then those guys on the lower end, Tank Bigsby, Zach Evans, Tajay Spears and Devon A-Chain. If you just don't want to bet on the extreme outlier, those two really don't have a lot of historical comps, especially Devon A-Chain. Uh, but I'd say those are the guys on the lower end, Bigsby, McIntosh, and Zach Evans uh, from this sample size filtering through. I just have a hard time seeing how they're going to be anything more than just a body. They're, they look like the guys that have gotten lost in the past, where we draft them, we go, oh, I know that name. And then halfway through the year, you go, why isn't that guy playing? Like, I don't want to throw out the names Trey Sermon or Isaiah Spiller, but it feels like this is the range where they're going to come from. And those are the names that stick out using some of this criteria from today's show. So again, go back and listen to last week's episode and then listen to this one. See what takeaways you have at running back. Uh, hit me up on Twitter if you have any questions. Uh, as always, you can find everything at Destination Devi at patreon.com slash all gas. Dynasty and chill over at patreon.com slash dynasty and chill. And then check out Dynasty Trades in 5 on YouTube. Trades in 5, we live stream every Tuesday night. And then I can't forget the newsletter, allgas.beehive.com backslash subscribe. Check that out. You get weekly content from the Destination Devi team in your email inbox. And then finally, if you haven't used Underdog, sign up for Underdog using the promo code CHILL and you'll get access to the Destination Devi Discord for a year. So with that, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back next week with another one. I'll go ahead and sign off. Be chill. Ain't like